0: The scripture reading this morning is from malachi chapter 3 verses 1 to 4 and then hebrews chapter 13 verses 15 to 16 hear the word of the lord i will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me and then suddenly the lord you are seeking will come to his temple the messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come says the lord almighty but who can endure the day of his coming who can stand when he appears For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. And then the Lord will have men who bring offerings in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in days gone by, as in former years. And then in Hebrews chapter 13, verses 15 to 16. Through Jesus, therefore... Let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name, and do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So again, we're in this series, seeing Jesus in the minor prophets, and we have done every minor prophet except Obadiah. You can go read him. Um, but we've done every other minor prophet, and this week we come to Malachi, and um, the word Malachi means messenger, and so when you think of message or messenger, what comes to mind? My guess is if you're under 25, the first thing you think of is do you have a blue in a little bubble when you text or a green bubble when you text, right? Um, There are just, there are certain sounds even when we think of messages that we associate together. If you're from North Texas, you know exactly what a tornado siren sounds like you know i grew up with those or if you drive now you probably can recognize very easily what a police car sounds like when it's behind you like there's just sounds we understand and when it comes to text messaging um you know it's something like 98 percent of all people have the exact same ringtone which i can verify to be true because anytime you're in the airport or the grocery store and a text message goes off i kind of look at my phone and go "Ooh, is that one me but the most popular um, text tone that people use is called the tritone and there's a man named Jeff Robbins who came up with this tone and he basically took three different pitches and put them in as many possible combinations as possible and just listened to them to see which one that when he heard it it really sort of went through the noise it sort of pierced the noise it went above the noise or whatever um, it, I, I do like that ringtone I don't know that it accomplishes that because I miss half of my text messages but he originally created it for this MP3 thing, which, you know, when everyone had DVD little CDs and had to transfer it to an MP3, he made this tone for that, and then Apple picked up on it, and boom, 98% of all iPhones have this little tritone. But when you hear that message, um, maybe if you're sitting at the grocery store or if you're in my house where everybody has a smartphone now because it's all young adults with me, as soon as it goes off, I think to myself, ooh, who got a message? Like, what, ooh, who wrote that message? And if it's not mine, I get really curious, and I start, you know, who, who, who's, what's going on here? Like, am I, am I missing out on something? Is mom texting, or what's happening around me? Um, you know, messages are significant for us, and with a book like Malachi, where the name of the book means message, we ask the question, what then is the message? Like, what's the message all about? And so, what we're going to do this morning is think about who's the messenger, What's the message? And for whom is the message sent? So, first, who's messenger? So, remember, in the book of Malachi, we're asking the question, what is Malachi telling us? But also, where do we see Jesus in the book of Malachi? Now, you could read all four chapters and you would see it, but what I want to do is give a little context here for a second. Um, Malachi is prophesying to people who have come out of the Babylonian captivity so they remember being captive. They remember being in a place where things were very, very difficult. And now they're in a place, like a generation or so removed, where um, the people who are sort of running things now don't really remember how tough it was. And they don't really remember um, why it is they ended, there, ended up there anyway. Uh, it, it's kind of like, you know, there's very few people in this room, if you're, if you're under 15 years old, who can imagine life without the concept of a smartphone Like, I I can very much remember life without a smartphone. Like, totally remember it. But, like, think about three generations from now. Probably the idea of carrying around a piece of glass and shoving it in your pocket and breaking them and then being expensive is gonna be ludicrous. They're gonna have something new, right? You know, the idea of remembering what's come before um, once it passes by and kind of gets out of sight, out of mind is something we can identify with and that's exactly what's going on with the people here in uh, Malachi that Malachi's writing to. They don't really remember what Babylonian captivity was like and they don't really remember how they got there in the first first place, But they do remember this. They do remember God had made promises to them, and they're pretty discouraged because God had promised to bless them richly, to give them a nation, um, to give them lots of resources that they would want for nothing, and it hasn't quite happened. And so they're beginning to ask this question. Maybe it's a question you've asked before. Is God really faithful? Like, will God do what he says he's going to do? He's made promises, but will he he live up to those promises? And the book of Malachi, he's telling them, Listen to what the Lord has said. Remember what He has said. Let that calibrate your heart. Um, For us, if you're thinking about knowing God's will, we've been going through this um, class in Sunday school where we ask that question of, what's one way? There are several ways, but what's one way you can know exactly what it is God thinks, what He wants from you, um, what He desires for you, maybe in a particular situation or not? Um, But one of the places you can always go, that you can always trust, are the Scriptures, 2 Timothy 3 says that all Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching and correcting and training so that we can be thoroughly equipped. So God gives us His Word so that we can know who He is. And He's calling us to look at it. And Malachi is telling the people of God the same thing. Hey, remember what it is God has said. He has said He will be faithful. In Malachi chapter 1, we read where the Lord says, Return to me, and I will return to you. So they're feeling distant from God maybe something you felt before, and Malachi's word to them is, just a minute, remember what God has said, remember his promises, and what Malachi does in these four chapters is he points to one who will come, who will point to the king who's going to deliver them, and he points to one who's going to be sort of preparing the way or making a way, and then that one is going to point directly to who Jesus is, and he's going to be like Elijah, and if you know your Bible history a little bit, you know John the Baptist fills that role, and I'm going to read you a couple of things that show that. In Malachi chapter 3, we read this, verse 1. I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me, and then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come. So the Lord is being unequivocal about it, right? There's one who is coming. And then Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you. Now, Elijah's already gone. and He's saying, I'm going to send Elijah to you. Then we read, now this is in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 17, so after these things took place, an angel appears to Zechariah and tells him this, your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you're to call him John, so this is John the Baptist, he will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord, he's never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he's born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn at the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready for a people prepared for the Lord. And so these things that Malachi is talking about are being fulfilled in this beginning part of John the Baptist being born. And then we read this in John chapter 1, verse 19. Once John's a grown man, and he wears fur, and he has like a weird belt, like he's a super strange dude. But we read this. Now, this was John's testimony. When the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was, John did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. They asked him, are you then Elijah? Now, they're remembering what was written in Malachi. Okay, then are you Elijah? And he says, I am not Elijah. Are you the prophet? Now, who are they talking about? They're talking about Moses. Now, if you think about Jesus in the transfiguration when his glory is revealed, there are two figures who appear with Jesus. Who are they? Moses and Elijah, right? So they say, are you Elijah? Nope. Are you Moses? I am not. He says, no. Verse 22 of John chapter 1. Finally, they said, okay, then who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. Malachi is telling the people, watch for a messenger who will come, and he will point to the king, that the Lord will send another. And when we, as we read the Newer Testament, as Christians on this side of the cross, we look back and we see the whole story fold out. But for the people in Malachi, they, they had made promises, um, by God, and they didn't see those promises coming to pass, and Malachi said, okay, here's, what's, here's what you need to do. You need to hear what God has said. You need, to, you, need to, you need to trust that what he has said is actually enough. And they were probably thinking, yeah, but I have questions. Like, what is happening, and why is this happening right now? And maybe you've done that, where you're trying to understand God's will for your specific situation in your specific moment. Here's the thing about who God is. He requires you to enter into faith. You know, God actually does not answer every single question your heart can muster on this side of eternity. But the Scriptures do answer every single question your heart needs answered. Maybe not need according to you, but need according to Him. And so, in much the same way, the people here are having a crisis of faith in Malachi. And and Malachi saying, listen, one is coming, and he's going to point to a greater one, and he's going to bring peace He's going to bring the kingdom. Now, both Malachi and John the Baptist are pointing beyond themselves. They're pointing to Christ. And their place in what God was doing was important, but even their work was secondary to him because they were pointing to someone who is greater than themselves. Now, when you think of something that's great, what comes to mind? Like, if you were gonna go read a book on the greatest things, what would you go read? Maybe the Guinness Book of World Records, right? Maybe you'd go check out the Guinness Book of World Records. I read in there, this was back, I think, in 2012, There was an X Games event and they said okay, the biggest jump that any car has ever made was 40 feet or 35 feet or something like that. And so what they did was Hot Wheels, like the MaxBox car maker, Hot Wheels teamed up with some uh, Red Bull and some um, Extreme Games stuff and they made this double dare loop, a real one, where there are these cars who drop in and go around a loop and then jump and land and they pulled it off flawlessly. Something like seven G's is what they experienced in the car, 88 kilometers per hour, and they land. And you know what was staggering to me about it? That, that's incredible of course, that's a great thing. But what was staggering to me is when you read articles about this, the questions, the interviews are asking the guys who just jumped these cars, you know what it is? So what are you gonna do now? Like it's not enough. It's not great enough. And they're like, well, maybe we'll do two loops or something. Like, you know, it's never enough. And what John the Baptist is pointing towards, what Malachi is pointing towards is this. The thing your heart really needs to rest in is the one who has come and is dwelling among you, Jesus himself. It may feel like it's an answer to these questions. It may feel like it's getting this figured out over here. Listen, the first thing you need to understand is that my messenger has been sent. I have brought my son into your world, into your presence, because he is actually the greatest. So what's his message? Malachi's message is this. If you're going to sum it up, I think you could sum it up like this. God has more for you than you think. I think that would be a good way to describe it. There's more to who God is. There's more to his faithfulness. There's more to his love there's more than you understand about his ability to actually satisfy you, even in the midst of suffering. If you've known people who love Jesus, who are in the midst of deep suffering, and yet they still have this contentment, it's not, they're not delusional. They've actually tapped into what Malachi is leading us to consider in this moment, that there is one who is great, and he has more for us than we can imagine. Malachi tells God's people, that they're chasing after things to satisfy their hearts that are not going to satisfy their hearts. It's kind of like I remember growing up and being so thirsty and telling my mom, Mom, I'm so thirsty. Please give me a Coke. She's like, that's not going to saturate your thirst. Drink the Gatorade. I was like, no, I want a Coke. You know, they're chasing after things that are actually not going to satisfy them. And actually Malachi is pretty explicit about it. And I think we can learn from some of the very things they struggled with. The first thing they struggled with is from Malachi chapter 1, verse 13. They were unfaithful in their worship. They were unfaithful in their worship. Verse 13 of chapter 1, Malachi says this, And you say, this is what the people say, and the Lord's saying this, What a burden! And you sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. When you bring injured and lame or diseased animals and offer them as sacrifices, should I accept them from your hands, says the Lord? They viewed worship as an irritating addition to their lives. Now, children, I want you to hear me for a second. Um, just because you're bored in church doesn't mean God's mad at you. Sometimes Pastor Brown's not that interesting. You know, that's fine. That's not what we're talking about here. What they're doing is they are, actually the way Malachi talks about it is they sniff at worship, right? They go, they're, 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 They bring the least of what they have. It would be like this. You know how we have an offering plate come by on Sunday mornings? We've talked about the idea of maybe putting a box in the back. It would be like this. You, th- you saying, I'm going to give an offering to God, and he's going to be impressed with it. I'm now done with this Kleenex, and so I'll put it in the offering plate. You're welcome. Like, it's ridiculous, right? It's contemptuous. It's disrespectful. And the Lord is saying, you're, you're worshiping me uh, without authenticity. I'm not interested in you pretending to love me. I want so much more. Remember that theme? I want more for you than that. I want you to worship me with your whole spirit and your whole body, with all of who you are. And so they were unfaithful in their worship. They were inauthentic. Secondly, their clergy was unfaithful. There's only a couple people in the room that applies to. Their clergy were unfaithful. Malachi chapter 2, verse 7, For the lips of a priest ought to preserve knowledge because he is the messenger of the Lord Almighty and people seek instruction from his mouth. And what was going on is they were actually... The priests were actually speaking in such a way to manipulate people to get them to do things, or they were just not speaking truthfully about God's Word. One of the things that's beautiful about our church, yes, we're Presbyterian, but just because of the way that we work as a church, I would not last very long up here if I was preaching things that were not from the Scriptures. The session, our Presbytery, we're really not interested in Brad's sort of opinion about what's best. The thing we care about is the thing that's lasting because my opinion changes. My opinion might change of you. I might have to repent of that or something, you know, if we get into it. God's word never changes. And the priest, in this responsibility that God has given to them, they're doing what before the people? They're being inauthentic. They're misrepresenting who God is. They're lying. And the Lord's like, this is not what I have in mind for you. This third thing Malachi addresses, he addresses the marriages of the people. Now, I'm married, so this, this also kind of hits close to home. Malachi, Malachi chapter 2, verses 11 to 15, Malachi talks to the people about what it means to have an authentic marriage, what it means to have a real marriage, what it, what it means to be faithful in your marriage, because what they were doing is they were abusing um, divorce. Like they were divorcing because people couldn't cook well. They were divorcing because of AIDS. They were divorcing for things that are completely wrong and insignificant, insufficient, and the Lord points this out as, a, as something for them to pay attention to when they're thinking about what it means to know him and love him, to the significance of, and comparing it to things like your worship is important, your priests being authentic and truthful, it's important, your marriage is important, it's significant before him. You know, one of the things that they were doing is they were, they were marrying outside of of, uh, of, their, of, their fam- of their people, of their people group. Now, it's different then, it's different now, it's whatever, but there are some similarities. You know, if you're, if you're a person who's married to someone who's not a Christian, for example, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to love them well. You're supposed to forgive. You're supposed to so experience God's love in your own soul that you learn to express it towards your spouse. Uh, that's what God calls us to do. If you're not married, how do you think about getting married to somebody? Well, you should marry someone who also loves Jesus. Why is that? Because the whole thing about following Jesus is that it's a core thing. It's a central thing. It's the most important thing. And when two people are married who start in different places, what happens is after the honeymoon wears off, after the newness kind of wears off, what begins to happen is the thing that becomes central is not God. And this is why that matters. Because God's paradigm for love is that we would love one another as he has loved us. That we would be gracious to one another based on our, our understanding of how gracious he has been to us. That we would love one another based on how he has loved us. What happens when you begin to love someone based on your own opinion of what it means to love? You begin to love them based on a cost-benefit analysis. When it costs too much and the benefit's not enough, I don't have to love you anymore. That is not how God loves me. God loves me a great sacrifice to himself, and the result is resurrection and life. The result is newness and joy. The result is that I get to have meaningful, authentic relationships. And when we echo that into our marriages, we begin to experience that kind of love also between husband and wife. God invites us to take seriously his love for us as the guiding paradigm for how we treat one another, especially in the context of marriage. Now I was once listening to a counselor, and he was talking to a person. I think it was a woman, and her husband was really honorary and difficult. And she said, you know, I'm tired of this guy. Um, I don't know what to do. And she said well, can, he said, well, can you love him like a friend? I mean, you know, friends, you can hang out with them sometimes, but you can only take them in small doses. And so maybe you can love him like a friend. Like, you can just spend a little time with him, and then you can, like, give him his distance. She goes, no, I can't love him like a friend. So, well, can you love him like a brother? Because, you know, no one can choose to not be related to their brother anymore like if it's your brother maybe you could just love him like a brother and just tolerate him and she said i absolutely cannot do that i can't stand him he said okay well try this can you love him like an enemy and jesus calls us to love our enemies can you love him like an enemy there's no way you can love someone like an enemy until you understand that you yourself were an enemy to god until jesus made things right through his sacrifice The whole concept of loving an enemy is ludicrous until you realize that God has loved us while we were yet his enemies so that we might become the righteousness of God. It's a paradigm that leads to life. It's not one we make up. It's one that we experience from God and then we express it. You know, if you're hearing this and you're thinking, I just can't understand anything of what he's saying, like I can't identify with this, the one thing you should take away from this is to consider, does God love you? What would it mean for him to love you? That's the starting point for us. So again, God is calling for authenticity with his people. I want you to worship me in authenticity. I want your church to be a place of truth where my word is preached. I want your marriages to be places where you so experience my love that you learn to express it in the context of your marriage, which will require faith. I've been married for 23 years. Jamie and I are still trying to figure out just how to not be bitter at times we're still trying to figure out how to forgive we're still trying to figure out how to assume the best of one another sorry if that's disappointing we're all in process and god is inviting us to first bask in his love so that we might learn how to express it towards others and in so doing we're responding to his messenger lastly what was wrong with the people well their generosity was unfaithful let me read to you from malachi chapter 3 verses 6 and 10 I, the Lord, do not change, and so you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. It's the same thing we read last week in Zechariah 1, verse 3. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? And then the Lord responds, will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings. You're under a curse, your whole nation, because you're robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw, up, throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. Now, before you walk out of the room, this is not a sermon on um, necessarily your tithing although it actually does very much kind of apply here. Let me me say a few things about this. The point of these verses, number one, is that the Lord does not change. So that's our starting point. The Lord does not change. Secondly, the people of God are being called out for being unfaithful, actually robbing God. Your ancestors were unfaithful, your ancestors' ancestors were unfaithful, and they said, well, what are we to do? He goes, well, I want you to return to me. I want you to return to me by being authentic. I want you to return to me by not robbing me. You're being unfaithful in your generosity. What does that mean for us? Well, one thing to ask is this. To what do we give ourselves and our resources? What do you give yourself to? And you may think, I don't give myself to anything. Okay, let me get more clear. How do you spend the hours of your day? How do you spend the emotional energy you have? How do you spend the money that you have? Where do you spend it? If you really wanna know what you love and what you care about, look at where you spend yourself. And God is asking the people to do the same thing here. Now for them, they were required to give 10% to the, to the, to the temple, to support the work of the temple and support the Levites and all that good stuff. They were required to do that. And um, to not do it was being unfaithful and to do it was to be faithful. And he's saying, you need to give all that I'm asking you to give. And if you do, watch, I'll open the storehouses. How do we think about that today? Well, it's too simple to say something like, everybody should give 10%. That's actually far too simple. Remember what Jesus said to the Pharisees. They were giving everything they had, and he called them out on it and says, you're giving everything you have to the church, and you're not even taking care of your parents. That's not the kind of sacrifice I want. So it's not as simple as just saying 10%, but how do we think about giving? For the Newer Testament Christian, we are called to give generously, for some of you, giving 1% to 2% is a real stretch, and you barely pull it off, and you need to feel God's pleasure at your sacrifice. I've had friends who have given 35 and 45% of their income to the church, and they still have vacation homes and pay for their kids' colleges and do all this other stuff because they're just really wealthy. Like, there's different, people are in different places. The question is, When you think about your resources not just your money but yes including your money but when you think about your time and you think about your efforts and you think about your heart and you think about all the things god's given you ask yourself this question are you giving yourself to something that's actually going to bring life and newness are you participating in even in worship by giving of what you have for the sake of being part of what god is doing god is inviting you to give at some level You know, for some of you it might mean that we're, you know, we're deciding to not have one Starbucks a month. We're gonna say, okay, I'm not doing a Starbucks. I'm gonna put $5 in the offering plate as a way to give. That's a good thing. Or if you're a child and you find a quarter in your house and you think, you know what, I want to give this to the church. That's a beautiful thing. You know, God is calling us to to actually do this. You ready? To let there be nothing off limits in our lives from who He is. But there's there's nothing off limits that he's given us every good gift, the book of James tells us. Every good gift is from above. God's inviting us to give of ourselves to his work because in doing, we're participating in this kingdom thing he's doing that's building us up. Now, if I have completely turned you off, if you're somebody who's hearing this and you're like really irritated, I want you to do two things for me. Number one, I want you to keep your money because God's, God can take care of his church. Keep your money. But the other thing I want you to do is this. I want you to really consider where your heart is centered like it's just good for you to know that like what's the most important thing to you god is inviting you to make him the greatest and in so doing what he wants to do is unload his grace on your life and i promise you as you engage with god as you learn more about him as you experience how generous he is you're going to discover the actual blessing that god gives to us whenever we give to one another God, when Jesus is asked the question, what's the greatest commandment? He says the greatest commandment is to love God, and the second, is like, the second is like it. Love one another. Why? Because in loving God and loving each other, we're accessing his kingdom. Why do you want to access his kingdom? Because that's the place where you find your heart's deepest affections met. It's the greatest. He's inviting you in. Okay, let me close with this. How has Christ, the messenger, fulfilled the unfaithfulness of the people that we just read about one he's faithful in worship Jesus makes the ultimate sacrifice he sacrifices himself that we might experience peace with him secondly he's a faithful high priest do you know that if you're a Christian anytime you pray you can have the absolute certainty that God is hearing you and responding to you because of what Jesus has done he's a perfectly faithful high priest and you may be thinking I don't deserve him to hear me did you, did you hear what God said? Return to me, and I'll return to you. That, that's the relationship. Return to me, and I'll return to you. Third, he's faithful as a husband. If you read Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 and following, it says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Do you think of Christ as your perfect husband? He presents you holy and blameless before the Father. He gives up Himself entirely so that you can experience life. And then, of course, He's faithful in His generosity. Christ has given us everything, access to His Father, membership in His people. We're brothers and sisters in the family. Jesus tells us He's preparing something for us that we can't even imagine in the day to come. Like, Jesus is generous to us. Know that you're loved. Know that the Lord pursues you and cares for you. And if you're wondering this morning if you've worshiped authentically, if you've worshiped in spirit and in truth, I want you to, if you just, you don't have to look at this, but let me just show you. If you read in our bulletin this morning, every single song talks about praising God at some level. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Worship his holy name. All creatures of our God and King, lift up your voice and with us sing. Like, Oh, praise Him. Our doxology, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Like, constantly praising God, right? If you've done that with your whole heart, I want you to hear this, this passage I read earlier from Hebrews again. We have been praising God this morning together, right? Now listen to this. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess His name, and do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. God is pleased with you this morning. He welcomes you. He is gracious to you. And I think, you know, as, as especially as we head into Advent, what, I would, what I'd ask you to do this week is just pray that God makes His grace real to you this week. Return to Him, and He will return to you. Let's pray together. Jesus, we do thank You for those promises that are ours in the Minor Prophets, that if if we return to you, you'll return to us. That you have enabled us to worship you authentically, that we can confess our sins and know that we're forgiven. That we can come before you and lean on your truth and ask you to make your church a place that is centered on your promises. That we can be a people who can be authentic with you, even about our relationships that we're really close in, like our marriages, and ask that your grace would come and be merciful to us there. That we can be a people who, experiencing your grace, can learn to reflect it to each other by being generous with one another, Lord. Would you do that in our midst, that we might continue to taste and to see that you are good. We ask all this in Jesus' name, amen.